brought you back to life. We of the logicians have planned this. We need your power. You need our mass intelligence. Are you listening? You belong to us. You shall be like us. Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're exploring this classic series from the beginning to see what's still worth watching for a modern audience. Today, we're diving into the first story of Patrick Troughton's second season, 1967's Tomb of the Cybermen. I'm your host, and I really enjoy pulling my lever up and down, if you know what I mean. <laughs> my co-host is Guy, who tries to convince women it's bigger on the inside, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so, boy, there's a lot of lever pulling in this story. <laughs> Yeah, this story uh, delivers feature prominently. Yeah. Uh, there's a whole lot of context, but I think we'll mostly cover it as we, we go through. Yeah, and it yeah. is, well, and I'll be curious to see what you think, because, well, for, I will say this was lost for a long time. So, you know, like most of the Patrick Trotten ones with lost, oh. unfortunately, they got all the episodes back. Yeah, we got four yeah, live action even, episodes. Have we even had a full nice. story of his that was live yet? Uh, I'm not sure if we have for Troughton or not. It is considered a real classic in terms of the Cybermen, so we'll see if you you agree or not. Hmm. But uh, we will just head into episode one. All right. So Victoria and the Doctor enter the TARDIS, and, you know, Victoria's coming from the previous story where her dad got killed, and, well, pretty much everybody got killed. <laughs> and, and we hadn't seen her as a human right. in all those. Animated. Those were all animated. So I it took me a, a moment or two to figure out exactly who <laughs> this was. <laughs> and she goes through the required, it's bigger on the inside bit. Um, and it's funny because... Jamie is, you know, the primitive from Scotland or whatever. Now he's at the point where he's explaining to her how everything <laughs> works and how they go through space and time and everything. And we then yeah. find out that the doctor is about 450 years old. Now, of course, <laughs> the doctor's age is one of those things that, you know, you can never totally nail down. And, of course, between any stories, there could be any amount of time, right, that they went off and did other things. Yeah, yeah. And, uh <laughs> Doctor Who's writers have shown us that they're not above occasionally just completely <laughs> yeah. breaking continuity and ignoring everything that came before. And we now see an alien planet, and this is actually a quarry. And it's not the first use of a quarry. That was in Dalek Invasion of the Earth. But this is the real start of quarries coming up. And they're going to for like decades over and over again because quarries are this very convenient way to have an alien landscape you know and they had a bunch of quarries in britain so they could just go out to one of these and they make good use of this one as we'll see the the one where they went to atlantis and they got in through a cave was that a quarry do you know i think they were actually on a shore but i mean it could have been i think it was a shore you know? oh, okay yeah yeah that might have been similar yeah. very okay. similar situation though yeah and we see this actually i think pretty clever and nice looking rocket it's because it's not the normal sort of fins and, you know, sharp top rocket. It's a capsule on top of uh, legs. And, and you know, so it's just a little different. It's not the stereotypical science fiction rocket. 
Uh, but it's it's obviously landed in this quarry, <laughs> in this alien. Hmm. Well, I, I don't even remember it, so it must not have impressed me too much. <laughs> well, it's the rocket they keep talking about, you know, throughout this area. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, uh, it plays yeah. a big part, but uh, we never see it very much. Yeah, I think this is the only time you see it is this first few seconds in this episode. And then we see Toberman, who is a big black guy standing up on a cliff in the quarry. And this is the, you know, second big black, mostly silent guy in a row. The last one was actually mute. Toberman is not mute, but he barely gets any dialogue. But he does get a number of things to do in the story. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe he'll have maybe he'll have a different character arc than uh, starting out working for the bad guys, switching to help the good guys, (laughs) and then dying heroically in a sacrifice. Yeah, I we forgot that hope. was the same mark as the last one. <laughs> so, yeah. Now, the funny thing is, remember, the first Cyberman story had the first black actor in Doctor Who, and he was one of the astronauts. So there wasn't any, you know, there wasn't anything questionable about it, right? He was a professional doing his job, although he also, I think, died in the... <laughs> but uh, anyway, so... Uh, people from the spaceship we saw are calling him to get down the cliff because apparently they've set up what we figure out is they set up an explosion and for some reason he's hanging around near where the explosion is going to be and they're really annoyed and they're calling him down. And then they ask a woman who we find out she's a sort of swarthy woman. <laughs> so we'll talk about swarthiness in a bit. Her name is Kaftan <laughs> and they ask her to control her servant. So, you know, the black guy's a servant. So great. The pilot of the ship, uh, his, his name we'll find out is uh, was Captain... Um, Hopper. He has mm-hmm. this allegedly American accent. And basically, the crew <laughs> of the ship, the ones who are actually flying it, are all Americans. And they, I don't, you know, I don't understand accents. I can't really perceive the subtleties between them. So I don't, I don't know what it is that they're doing here, but there's just this sort of, they're not doing like Texas, which I have seen in other British shows, but it's this sort of over the top, um, pronunciations of everything. Oh, man, you're. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he's very, very clearly supposed to be American. It's, uh, they're really driving that point home. Even his word choice uses a lot of slang that I presume is more frequent in uh, America. He just comes across as very American. So, well, in his favor as an American, he actually usually has a pretty practical uh, viewpoint. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he seems to know what he's doing. So the explosion is ready. They get behind rocks and they blow a hole in the side of the quarry. And it's, you know, it's pretty clearly a real explosion. So that's one of your benefits of a quarry. You can blow up parts Mm -hmm. of it. You don't have to do like model shots or something. (laughs) You may not even have to pay for it. You just wait for them to do a scheduled blast and get it on And this explosion (laughs) reveals an entrance. And the pilot, this is what it's, I don't know if it's supposed to be American. He says, Man, you just blew yourself a pair of doors. <laughs> <laughs> now, they had some background materials on this with the actual archaeologists talking about the story, and it is kind of funny. They're like, yeah, we don't go around blowing up for stuff when we're trying to do uh, Yeah, I, I think I did almost sort of unconsciously cringe <laughs> when they did that there. Well, but it worked for them. <laughs> they found the doors. Yeah, they worked out okay in this place. Good thing the this tomb was built to last. So they all head up the cliff to the doors, and I really like this, and I like this scene throughout, which is 
we see these doors two you know big two two door thing but on the sides they're just like in an actual egyptian tomb there are these sort of egyptian style hieroglyphics images of cybermen mm -hmm. and, and i think the way they did it is really pretty creative and fun you know it really does tie into the and i don't know how to describe what that looks like you know it's like huh. well you have what, what how i saw it was that these icons of cybermen that they have up they looked like Mayan style to me, and I mean, I'm not an archaeologist, so I could be just talking out of my butt here, but I mean, they looked kind of Mayan styled, in my opinion. But uh, but yeah, that's uh, it definitely has this uh, look of an ancient tomb with some more modern materials yeah. used and in it. And this is very much a, a product at that time of a fascination with Egyptian tombs and pyramids, right? Because there was a whole number of decades there where they were uncovering previously unknown tombs and everything. And this lasted a long time because this is 67. I wasn't born until the next year. But 10 years later as a student, I remember King Tut was huge in America, right? Because they had uncovered Tutankhamun's uh, tomb. Uh. And I remember, you know, they had a traveling um, you know, exhibition of the stuff. And we did this school trip where we like got up at oh, 5 a.m. Yeah. and got on a bus and Went and saw it. And also, if you recall, Steve Martin had the great uh, King Tut song where he was like, oh, you know, buried with a boner. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to talk seriously just for a moment. One of the great art exhibits ever to tour the United States is the Treasures of Tutankhamun, or King Tut. But I think it's a national disgrace the way we have commercialized it with trinkets and toys, T-shirts and posters. And about three months ago, I was up in the woods and I wrote a song. I tried to use the ancient modalities and melodies. I would like to do it for you right now. Maybe we can all learn something from this. King Tut. King Tut. Now, when he was a young man, he never thought he'd see. People stand in line to see the boy king. King Tut. How'd you get so funky? Funky Tut. Did you do the monkey? Born in Arizona, who is a Babylonian king? I had uh, I had the vinyl uh, LP of his uh, comedy yeah, act so, where he did So there that. was like oh, yeah. a couple decades where <laughs> this was a pretty big deal and people were really fascinated by it all. And of course, there's the, the curse idea that everybody who found the tomb and opened it died in mysterious ways and all this. So anyway, here, uh, the woman caftan <laughs> offers 50 pounds for the first man to get the doors open. So one of the presumably American, you know, crew from the ship really wants that 50 pounds and rushes up and, you know, grabs the doors and they're, they're electrified. And they were very much replicating the idea here of traps in the tombs, right? Which is true. I mean, it's oh, not like yeah. in Jones or whatever where they had all these, you know, dart things or whatever. But what they would do is they would, for example, have a hole in the floor. And if you weren't paying attention, you would fall, you know, when you walked there, that sort of thing. Right. And now uh, that this guy has died, we hear the TARDIS materializing. And then the TARDIS crew walks from behind a hill. So this is very clever. I don't know if you notice this, but they managed to not have to bring the TARDIS out to the quarry because you just, you hear it and then you see the crew, but you never actually see the TARDIS. So that saved them. 
a lot of hassle. Yeah. <laughs> or doing a model oh, shot yeah. or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but because of the timing, of course, you know, they showed up right after this guy electrified himself. <laughs> the archaeology crew decides that somehow they must have been involved in him getting electrified. And I, I'm not quite sure why that would be. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the archaeologists explain they've been searching for the last remains of the Cybermen. You know, they, they died off 500 years ago. No one knows what happened. And this is Telos, which was their home. Although I think they're maybe hmm. retro doing things here because, you know, it w their home was Mondas, which got blown up. But I think they're now saying, well, there was another planet that they came from before Mondas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it goes back to that <laughs> continuity thing, that pesky yeah. old continuity. Uh, also, I wanted to mention that this is something that I noticed this right at the time, uh, that naming this Telos, I, I think that means something like goal or, you know, the the final destination. Uh, uh, so, I mean, it, it's sort of an easy name, you know, if you were just <laughs> picking names out of the air. And I have a little more to say about that later, but we'll get to that. Uh, but, yeah, it, it's entirely possible this was like their second well i think it's supposed to be their first right but it is confusing <laughs> they don't you know uh they don't bother to do much explaining but you know the cybermen need to persist so. yeah <laughs> so the the pilot captain hopper wants to leave because one of his crew just got killed and they should you know they should abandon the mission but of course the archaeologists want to stay and now the doctor wants to stay because he knows that cybermen are involved right and yeah. uh, there's a general argument, and it turns out the the way this works is there's a professor who's the head of the you know you have the it's this whole structure, you have the pilot, so he has his own authority and responsibilities. You have a professor who's leading the expedition, but then there's also this man named Klieg and the woman captain, and they paid for the expedition, so they don't have authority, but they paid for it, so they kind of have some authority, right? And that's part of the. Yeah, and interestingly, I, I just, um, I looked up uh, Carter and Lord Carnarvon, you know, and the discovery of King Tut's tomb. That was about the only research I did for this episode, and I, I really just looked it up out of curiosity, uh, but it turns out that their expedition had a similar model where Lord Carnarvon was the financial backer and Carter was the actual uh, mm -hmm. domain expert, so to speak. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's plausible. And <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, uh, Carnarvon or whatever it was didn't have the same sort of um, goal that <laughs> Cleek and Captain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think uh, Carnarvon uh, had loftier goals in the long run. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, Klieg would disagree. His goals couldn't well. be loftier from one <laughs> viewpoint. <laughs> so the archaeologists want to make the TARDIS crew leave, but the doctor says he can open the doors, and of course that's attractive to them. He approaches with some kind of metal thing or magnet, and the door is no longer electrified. The funny thing is we find out that it's not that he didn't it's not that he did something to remove the electricity. He just says, oh, well, the electricity all went into the guy who died and now we can open the door. So he didn't really, he kind of does a fast roll on them because they didn't really need him to get him. 
Yeah, they discharged the capacitor mm. or something, I guess. But even with the electricity <laughs> gone, no one is strong enough to open the doors until Toberman does it. You know, so Toberman is this huge, strong guy. Yeah. Who's a big part of the story. And I gotta, I gotta call BS on this because the doors, you know, there are two doors that swing outward. You know, each door has a handle on it. So you could double the force being applied to the doors just by having a different guy <laughs> grab each door handle. Well, Toberman is the one who manages to do it. And the doctor warns, cautioned everyone, but they all just rush inside. <laughs> and then we have this funny little bit. There, This is some funny context. So, you know, um, Patrick Troughton and, and Fraser Hines, who played Jamie, they like to do funny little bits, right? Well, the director of this, uh, Morris, um, I forget his last name, Morris Berry, I think, he was a very serious guy, and he had no time for funny little bits. <laughs> so what they would do hmm. is they would sneak them in, and because of the shooting schedule, they wouldn't, you know, once they'd done it, they just had to move on, right? So the director couldn't really get rid of it. Yeah, what was filmed was filmed. There was no second chance. So they do this funny little bit here, which they knew they wouldn't be able to take out, which is that after everyone's rushing inside, the doctor thinks he's grabbing Victoria's hand, but he's actually grabbing Jamie's hand, and then they kind of get disgusted and throw their hands apart. Uh, and that was definitely one where they, they snuck it in. Now I will I I'll you know again give them some credit. So the first room we go into, which we spend a lot of time in in the show, and it has a lot of stuff in it, right? There's a, first there's the panel of levers that we're gonna spend a lot of time with, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, there's a small set of stairs that lead to a large hatch of some sort, and that's gonna be important. And there's also this big circular display on the wall that'll that'll become important. So you know they do a lot with. Uh, pretty small, you know, probably space here uh, in the set. Uh, and as they're all kind of wandering around looking in this room, Ka the woman, Captain and Klieg are clearly plotting something. They're like sort of coordinating on who's going to do what. And, you know, we don't know what it is, but it doesn't, it doesn't sound too good. And the doctor points out there are two extra doors that no one else noticed. And he assumes the doors are activated by the levers. And so these levers are this logic system and pulling the right levers and pushing the right buttons in the right order is a continual theme in this story. And the doctor uses his knowledge of symbolic logic to open the doors. And this, this is another place where I have to call BS because, you know, they spend a fair amount of time talking about, you know, what <laughs> logic they're going to apply and they have no basis. <laughs> I mean, there's, Literally an infinity of, you know, organizing principles that could have been used to set up these lovers. And somehow they, they just know that they have to follow these particular lines of thought to activate them. There's not even like a mural or something in there that they have to <laughs> decipher. They're just like looking at the number of lovers, you know, in a row and Now in favor of the I writers, mean, they do mention, yeah. the doctor mentioned something like, oh, this is an or gate. And that's actually a real thing, right? And an or and, and all that. Yeah. Well, they bring in real world terms you know they're talking about different things like uh there's a uh, the power series of you look at the exponents <laughs> of the different coefficients or whatever you know i mean so they're using it's 
It's basically what Star Trek does. We've talked about this before. You know, with uh, you know, we have to rewire the phase interceptors and all this. You know, they just pull stuff out of their butt, basically. <laughs> so, since this is Doctor Who, they now decide that you know, being in a strange tomb that's already killed someone, the best thing is for them to all split up. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the professor, the doctor, and Klieg stay behind in the first room, and everyone else kind of goes exploring. I'm sure nothing will go wrong with that. <laughs> no. Captain, Victoria, and an archaeologist enter a room, and they're looking around, and it looks like there's a recessed space in the wall that's shaped such that it's clear like a Cyberman would stand inside it, and then there's a door that would close over him. And Captain immediately realizes, oh, this must be where they revitalize themselves, right? The Cyberman would get into this recess in the wall, the door would close, and then there's a machine that would revitalize them. And Victoria, who makes a lot of bad choices in this story, she's like, oh, I'd like to be revitalized. So she gets into the recess space. Like it's, you know, like it's a suntan, you know, thing. <laughs> so she's she's a pretty standard tourist, yeah. uh, I think. Yeah, she, she sees something interesting and decides she's got to go yeah. explore it. It'd be the amateur archaeologist. In another room, Jamie and a guy who's a random guy are, are talking, and Jamie wants to know why the rooms are lit with no actual light source. And I was like, okay, this is this is the writers who, one of whom was a scientist, like wanting to hang a lantern on it, right? They're like, okay, everywhere's lit. We want to. Ex- <laughs> they didn't even need to explain it. Nobody cares about why rooms are lit, right? But yeah. Yeah, they still haven't bothered explaining how they can all speak the same language, and that's been five seasons now. <laughs> so the guy gives some gobbledygook explanation about, uh, you know, some substance in the walls that provides perpetual light, and, you know, okay, we'll move yeah. on. You know, but nobody cares. Yeah. And then Jamie finds an apparently fossilized little mechanical creature, so maybe that will come back. In the main room, and, you know, we do a lot in these episodes of just kind of going between what's going on in the different rooms. And sometimes what I try to do is just unwind them. I don't do it in the always in the exact order yeah. that it occurs because it would be too disruptive. So I just try to tell the whole story in one room and then another room. But anyway, in the main room, that display I mentioned on the wall is now lit up. It has just all sorts of different symbols and different parts of it will light up at different times. And they haven't been able to figure out how to open the hatch I mean, Klieg has done every mathematical combination of level playing that he can think of. And the doctor points out something he didn't consider, but he warns him not to do it. And, of course, Klieg immediately does it, and everything starts shaking. So it's like there's an earthquake or something. In the revitalization room, Captain now, I mean, clearly her, what we could tell is that her goal was to get Victoria to get into that revitalization thingy so she could do it on her and yeah. see what happened, right? So she now, so this room has its own set of levers. Like every room has levers. <laughs> so she intentionally pulls a lever that causes the door to swing closed and trap Victoria in the recess space. And a funny thing here, the actress uh, in, in the background material, she says she's extremely claustrophobic. So the moment that happened, they had to take her out and put someone else in there who could do, you know, like the sound <laughs> and stuff because she couldn't stand now that the door is closed on Victoria, Captain pulls some other levers, clearly trying to revitalize her. But the doctor comes in and stops her, although he doesn't he doesn't seem to realize she's doing it on purpose. You know, he's just like, oh, don't screw with things, right? Yeah. 
And then he manages to pull the right levers to release Victoria. And in the uh, the other room, Jamie with that random guy, he thinks he saw the metallic creature move. And the other guy points out the control panel in the room is suddenly active. And he pulls one of the levers, as you do. And a pattern lights up on the wall. And it's like hypnotic, right? They can't help but stare at it, you know. Yeah. Until it fades out. And they decide to try it again, and Jamie operates the lever uh, while the guy is standing in the center of the room. And a Cyberman zooms out on a track, and the random guy is shot dead. <laughs> the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. So at the uh, beginning of episode two, we get a little recap of what we just heard. And the doctor's in here now, you know, with a bunch of gawkers. And uh, the doctor notices that this man was not shot by the figure that was momentarily. The figure has vanished again, you know, the Cyberman. Uh, he's slid back into wherever he came from. The doctor notices that this man was shot in the back, not by the uh, thing in the front of the room. And the doctor has Jamie recreate the lever combination. There's a funny little bit here where he says, you know, anyone who is concerned about this uh, could be dangerous. Uh, Anyone who's concerned, please leave the room. And Jamie (laughs) turns to go and says, not you, Jamie. (laughs) So Jamie recreates the combination of levers. uh, And once again, the Cyberman slides out on a rail. You know, it's very much like what you'd see in a a county fair dark ride or something, you know. And there's a gun on the other side of the room, and it shoots the Cyberman dummy. It turns out the doctor deduces this is a weapons testing room. Strange thing, perhaps, <laughs> to put in a tomb, but uh, <laughs> that's Yeah, well, what it you know, is. in the afterlife, you might need some weapons, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. So, Victoria, uh, she finds a metal slug. Uh, it's about the size of a potato, and it's got big, <laughs> stupid bug eyes. I mean, they're really ridiculous looking. It does not look robotic in the least. They're just big Google eyes. Design-wise, they made a huge mistake, right? Or at least I, I don't think they intended this, right? Because they look so silly. And the reason they look silly is exactly what you said. They have the big eyes. And that's what they do like in anime, right? If you want someone to be sympathetic, you give them big round eyes. Right. So you have these little things which are murderous little bastards, as we're going to see, and they have these huge eyes. Now, these huge <laughs> eyes could be to make them sympathetic so people don't step on them or whatever, but it does. It just makes them look like silly yeah. little dolls. I mean, I think it would have probably worked better if they'd given them a little more, you know, sinister appearance, <laughs> but it is. It is pretty funny. Yeah, you know, if they had just left the eyes yeah. off altogether, that would have been, uh, you, then you would have had something uh, kind of like the right. alien xenomorph, you know, with just the smooth helmeted face. But this is what we got. <laughs> These slugs with Google <laughs> eyes. So the doctor, uh, he he consults a book. I presume mm. this is the diary that the past incarnations of the doctor diary. have been <laughs> compiling. Yeah. He says uh, that this thing is a cybermat. Now, the funny thing is, we've been with the doctor that we know of so far every time he's encountered the Cyberman, and there was no cybermat before, so I don't know. Hmm. But, you know, maybe there's a story we weren't told, and, you know. Yeah, yeah. 
Maybe he did yeah. some research in the in the doctor's private archives or something. Who knows? But he tells Victoria to leave it alone. So as soon as he turns his back, of course, she tucks <laughs> it into her purse. So there's another one of those bad yeah. calls you were talking about. <laughs> Although this one actually works out not mm. badly for her. So it's arguable, I guess. But it's certainly not <laughs> what I would have done in the situation. Meanwhile, Toberman comes into the main room, and it isn't clear where he was. Uh, I think, as we'll see in a moment, I think he was outside and had snuck mm -hmm. back to the spaceship. But he says to Kafton, it is done. Then Kafton and Klieg take a moment to uh, allude to whatever sinister plot they're working on. Klieg complains he doesn't, he's not going to have enough time to do all his logical figuring and reckoning and so forth, and uh, Kafton says, we have plenty of time, you will see. The leader, Perry, now that a guy has died, uh, he reluctantly decides to abandon the expedition. He says... And I got to say, you know, aside from the Doctor and Company, this is like the one good... Per well, you know, the captain, too. Captain mm -hmm. Hopper is fine. But, I mean, but but he, this guy actually has morals, right? He's like, well, I put my whole life on this, et cetera, but somebody's died. Yeah. Now. So we, we've got to pull out. Like, he's he's a reasonable yeah, guy. He, I mean, yeah, I, th I think it's a good call because... Uh, Clearly, what they're up against here is something they're unequipped for. Uh, Klieg doesn't see it that way, but uh, you know, any reasonable, sane person uh, would probably see it that way. You know, go back and uh, get the Marines. Yeah, I mean, surely they could get more support for the expedition if they say, "Hey, look at these Polaroids we took of this Cyberman uh, <laughs> tomb." You know, it's just there; it's real. Mm -hmm. But Klieg objects to this. And then it turns out that all these discussion, all this discussion is moot because Captain Hopper, he comes in and says that someone has sabotaged the ship's fuel pumps. Uh, so ho hopefully uh, the sabotage didn't involve draining the fuel pumps, uh, but that, that would be going a little too far because then nobody, nobody could get home. So presumably this is what Toberman meant when he said it is done. He was out sabotaging mm -hmm. the rocket. And here's uh, an Americanism from Captain Hopper. He says that whoever did this wrecked our chances of getting off this crummy planet. <laughs> <laughs> and from what we've seen, it is a crummy oh, planet. Yeah. I mean, it's just a bunch of rocks. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty much the way I'd phrase it, probably, if I were in his shoes. So, yeah, good on him. He says it'll take three days to repair, so probably, assuming that he's a good engineer, uh, it's probably around one day to repair and two days of testing would be my guess. <laughs> <laughs> I've mentioned this before, you know, when I worked at Apple and engineers working for me, and, you know, they'd be like, oh, this weekend I came up with an entire new graphic subsystem. And they'd be like, you know, we need to just have this thing move two pixels over here. And the, it's not possible. I can't make you know, There's no way to do it. <laughs> so, yeah, so if an engineer wants it done, they'll do, they'll go to amazing lengths. And if they don't want to do it, everything is impossible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think in a Alien, uh, there's a scene like that where, uh, Parker and Brett have to clean some dust out of the intake manifolds or some such thing, and they just, they just, you know, they make up some estimate that uh, is much. They, they sandbag it, you know. It's longer than they're actually going to yeah. need. Anyway, the uh, the captain says he doesn't want visitors during repairs, which at first could sound pretty suspicious, but he confides to the doctor that 
he's he wants to guard the ship against any further sabotage. You know, he wants to keep yeah, an he, eye on it. He makes it clear he doesn't know who one of the people here did this. Now the doctor thinks it might have also been something like so. Probably he's seen it a second, right. right? But but he's right. It was one of the people here, and he doesn't know who it was, and so he doesn't want any of them coming to the ship, which is entirely reasonable. Oh, sure. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, he says some other cute line. I don't remember exactly what it was, but he says something like, I want to leave this planet with my skin on tight or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but the captain brought coats and food for everyone, or uh, anoraks is what he calls them, which I, I think is just a, a term that's favored in Britain for coats. Yeah, for everyone who will be staying in the tomb. Klieg still wants to go down that hatch and explore. The hatch is still closed. The doctor tells Victoria and Jamie they can go back to the TARDIS if they want. Victoria doesn't want to hear about it at all. And Jamie Jamie is a little more reluctant, but he wants to stay also. Yeah, it seems like he wants to go, but because she wants to stay, he yeah, stays, which is a little Yeah, funny. team spirit and all that. So the doctor and Jamie, Cleek's standing over by the control lovers, and the doctor and Jamie go over to help him, but Toberman is standing between them, and he actually thrusts out a hand, and he restrains the doctor. He keeps him back from Klieg. He's pretty protective of him. But uh, soon enough, uh, you know, Kaftan makes it clear that it's okay for them to join Klieg. And Klieg uh, is having an, a, a eureka moment here. Uh, he's discovered a, a Boolean function of symbolic logic <laughs> that will uh, open the doors, or he thinks will. And he tries uh, a sequence, and it... Uh, didn't work, but now he's going to try another one. And while he's trying this sequence, we see the doctor secretly push a button. There's not just lovers. It's also some buttons, too. So it's very, very elaborate. But while Klieg is doing his thing, the doctor surreptitiously pushes this button to try and sabotage it. Yeah, so I'm not sure about that. Because, well, first of all, it's funny because, of course, Patrick Troughton's whole thing is he's always screwing with control panels, right? <laughs> so, so this fits into his background. But I think he was actually pushing a button that Clee didn't understand because he wanted the door to open. Ah, that's possible. Um, and, and, and a moment later, to sort of confirm that, when, when Clee's like, oh, I did it, you know, the door's opening, and Jamie says, oh, but the doctor helped you, and, and the doctor, like, shushes him. Yeah. Right. So, so I don't know why he wanted the door to open, but I feel like he was. That I feel like that's what was. Okay, was that, that that makes sense. Yeah. All right. I'll, we'll go with your uh, explanation. That makes sense to me. At any rate, what he did, uh, his little intercession, uh, made the sequence work, and the hatch does open. And uh, the women, of course, will stay up here. That's that's an actual line. I don't remember who said it, but of course mm -hmm. we'll stay up here. <laughs> Victoria wants to go down the hatch. Uh, you know, she's an adventurous sort. But uh, the doctor pulls her aside and quietly asks her to stay up here uh, because she can be most useful keeping an eye on Captain, who the doctor is coming to mistrust a little, apparently. And this is where I hit my note about uh, what I said earlier about the naming, like Telos being the end goal and all of that. Some of the characters, I have to wonder if they were named in Kaiser Soze style, you know, by somebody looking around the room, like Kaftan, Klieg, <laughs> Toberman could be a Doberman, you know, Perry could be like, I don't know, a picture of Commodore Perry, Viner could be a bottle of wine, you know, so on. I, I just, uh, uh, it made me wonder, but... 
Yeah, I don't know. Cherry Nation didn't write this one. So, uh... yeah. <laughs> Everybody, I think any experienced author develops their own favored naming style. Ayn Rand was notorious for that. She had some wonderful names. So now everybody's gone downstairs through the hatch. Kafton and Victoria are alone together. Kafton offers her some chicken, but it turns out this chicken is really some futuristic food cube thing that doesn't look very appetizing to Victoria, so she politely declines. Down below, the group uh, goes through a little entrance hallway, and they enter a big room, and it has a real tall wall. We see throughout these episodes, we'll see several shots of this wall freezing and thawing, <laughs> and it's it's impressive. As, as I mean, the actual freezing and thawing animation is decent you know i mean it's clearly like you know maybe five or six different phases that they sort of blend into each other you know as it thaws out but it, it works it's fine and this tall wall uh one of them describes it as like a gigantic honeycomb it's basically <laughs> four four levels of these cells now we can't really see this clearly yet um so i'll i'll hold off on that but but this wall is a honeycomb of cells, or tombs. And Kling speculates about a way to warm things up in here. It's very cold, and uh, he's eyeing a panel of control levers as he's saying this. <laughs> this is like the fourth panel of control levers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and each panel is actually like multiple panels uh, strung out around the room. Upstairs, Victoria is suddenly sleepy. She's uh, sitting on the floor with her back against the stairs, if I remember right. But but uh, she's sleepy, and uh, it's pretty clear that Captain has drugged her coffee. And after Victoria is out for the count, Captain flips one of the levers on the control panel, and it closes the hatch to down below. Mm -hmm. So all of our friends down below are trapped down there now. And they hear it close, and they check it out. Clegg is nonchalant about the whole thing. He says, uh, if it closes, it can be opened, which uh, uh, reminded me of the old uh, fire sign theater routine. If you push it, it will fall over. <laughs> I don't know why that came to mind, but if it closes, it can be opened, is Clegg's line here. And uh, he tries a sequence of levers that doesn't work. At least it doesn't work on the hatch, which is ostensibly what he's trying to open. But no, right. I think mean, you know, as we see, part of the thing he's sort of claiming he's trying yeah. to open the hatch, but we know he's not. Yeah, he actually is trying something else, and he's succeeding at it uh, because the room is getting warmer, and this is where we see the ice on that wall of tombs melting, uh, and it reveals these backlit cells full of Cybermen. And these silhouettes are moving inside of them. And the way the silhouettes are moving, it's just sort of aimless, almost like dance-like movements, kind of like those bee people in one of those episodes we saw <laughs> long ago. But there's four levels of cells, so the combination, I mean, this, it, it looks to me like the set for a Broadway musical, like, like when the <laughs> Cybermen get out of these cells, they're all going to start a song and dance number. I think an interesting thing here is that Normally, a set like this would be like a model size or something, but they have actual people inside there, and it is, like you say, like four or five levels. This is huge, right? I mean, this is a really large uh, set piece that these people are in. Oh, yeah. 
and you know they have these ladder things down the side <laughs> i could just and there's no like safety there you i mean like if one of these people fell and they're in these you know big suits and everything uh they would just be in trouble because this is really really tall yeah yeah you want to be careful around it uh and I wanted to mention, since you mentioned the ladders, they're kind of slick. All the ladders in this facility, um, you know, we have on our ladders, we have squares from rung, in the space between the, the steps, you know, the, it's, the space forms a square. Well, here the space forms a semicircle or an arch. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of cool. I was I was wondering if that actually would be a structurally more practical way to build a ladder, if that archway shape would yeah. offer any additional support. But I'd, you'd think it would have to offer less support than just having it straight across. On the, I don't know. That's interesting question anyway. But it looks cool. <laughs> and it looks usable, so that's good too. So Viner, he he's he's a guy. Uh, he's a member of the exposit expedition who uh, has been worried and panicky throughout the whole expedition, uh, and he goes and flips the switches back to where they were and reverses the thawing. Klieg is obviously upset about this, and Viner refuses to abandon the controls. So Klieg uh, has a rather surprising reaction. He pulls out a pistol and he shoots him. And then, uh, and then he thaws the cells again. So now, uh, Klieg has shown his hand. He's, uh, he's up to some no good business here. And the Cybermen, we see now that they're, uh, straining against the walls of their cells. They're, uh, almost clear, kind of translucent, but mostly clear. And it looks to me like they're made out of something that's weaker than condom lake latex, but stronger than saran wrap, you know, somewhere in between there. And, you know, I didn't look it up to refresh myself, but I'm pretty sure they were referencing how bees are, like, born, right? Because I think bees are in that kind of structure mm. with a, a a transparent thing over it. And they sort of, when they're born, they need to, like, break out oh. of it, you know, sort of like a something breaking out of a shell. Anyway, that's my... My recollection, okay. but I didn't look it up to verify verify that. Huh. But uh, and they use this a lot, you know, the this covering over the cells and them going in and out, and <laughs> we get some fun reverse oh, shots yeah. where they go back in and seal back <laughs> up the cell. <laughs> and it, it's interesting when we get to that point that um, at first I didn't realize they were reversing the film. So when they filmed it, they must have had the Cybermen exit in a way that would be like plausibly reversible because it wasn't until I saw the <laughs> condom latex healing up behind them that I realized it was reversed. <laughs> uh, upstairs, meanwhile, Victoria finally comes to uh, apparently it wasn't a long-lasting drug that she was drugged with, and she doesn't notice that her purse, which is lying on the floor, is twitching now. <laughs> Captain explains that she closed the hatch, and Victoria is going to open it, but it turns out Captain also has a gun. And while they're arguing, the Cybermat slug emerges from Victoria's purse and starts crawling across the floor. The implication is it was sort of dormant, but once they uh, opened the tomb or once they heated up the tomb, that sort of also activated the Cybermat, mm -hmm. right? Like it, it came to life, yeah. yeah. Down below, Perry, who is the professor leading the expedition, he asks Klieg, but why? And Klieg responds, Logic, my dear professor, logic and power. 
And this is probably <laughs> as good a place as any to say that uh, Klieg is a, a fun villain to me. I think he's probably one of the better Doctor Who villains we've seen so far. <laughs> and he is utterly, totally nuts. I mean, he and he has absolutely no self-awareness. I mean, not even the most rudimentary kind of uh, humility or caution or prudence or you know any any virtues that might help him get off the planet alive uh, but he's fun well and I, we'll find out more about it he's part of the i don't remember exactly what they call it it's basically the union of logicians yeah, right and so uh, the, he, know, he had a well yeah i don't remember the name he used for it but he's sort of their spokesman on this i guess yeah so basically he wants the logicians to take over because they're the smart people and think about this actor so he's like a greek actor who came to Britain, didn't speak English, you know, spent a couple years learning English. He ended up playing uh, monsters, I think like the mummy or whatever in Hammer films and, the, and doing this and everything. So he really, he's just one of those cases of an immigrant who came and made his stamp and sort of, you know, worked his way up mm -hmm. uh, uh, through things. And uh, so I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, he does. He does have an uh, an accent, but it's not impenetrable. It actually works pretty well for this character. Now, one of the criticisms of the story, let's see what you think, is that we do have the case that because he was Greek and Captain, I don't know if she's Greek or whatever, but anyway, she's also, as I said, swarthy, mm -hmm. right? So, so you have the case where oh, the bad guys are the swarthy ones, mm. right? You know the the foreigners in some way, uh, um, and you know that is a criticism of the show. Now you know I always feel like okay, but you know just did they do a good job or or whatever, right? So um, yeah, I uh, I don't know. It's a it's it's a it's a moderately interesting point, but it's not something I don't think I'm going to lose any sleep over. But. It's sort of like the modern version of this is that, oh, what's his name who plays the character in Game of Thrones, the sort of dwarf oh, character? Oh, uh, Peter Dinklage? Dinklage? I'm not yeah, sure. and he's a great actor, and that's a great character. And he's, you know, he made huge sacrifices. And now, I mean, when he was doing Game of Thrones, he was like the highest paid actor in Hollywood, hmm. right? I mean, and, and so he really succeeded. Well, he was terrific in that show. I, I, I saw the... First six seasons, I think, and he he was really a standout. Yeah, but in his career, he really suffered because he refused to do standard dwarf slash little people mm, stuff. Here, right. he refused to play munchkins and, and stuff and like that. And, yeah, yeah etc. And I totally respect that. And and I and and you know, and like I say, he gave up a bunch of money so that he he wouldn't do that, and eventually he became very successful. But now he's critical of like the Snow White live action. I heard a little something about because, that, yeah. Yeah, well, there's a lot of elements to that, but I'm just going to focus on his part because he's like, oh, you know, this is ridiculous. They shouldn't have the dwarfs in this or whatever. And then you have other little people slash dwarf actors who are like, hey, we would have liked to have. And so they took the dwarfs out. Uh, now they're putting them back in a CGI and it's all a big complicated <laughs> thing. But anyway... Disney took the dwarfs out in large part because apparently because of his criticism. Mm, yeah. And then you have other actors of that sort who are like, wait, that this is our kind of chance to do a role. Like, yeah, it'd be you nice know, to get a good job. For you. You're now big, <laughs> yeah, you're now big and successful, but we would like to have taken these roles, yeah. right? And now they're being given to normal 
quote uh, yeah. you know, what I mean by that, nor- normal actors. So I can't possibly, I mean, I'm sure like if we were to have a discussion with him or a debate and, you know, he would obviously have much more insight into his thinking and, and why he has an, an issue with this. But but my starting point is why why would you keep people from being able to play these roles and get a job, right? Yeah. So it's so, sort of similar. On the one hand, we can say, oh, you're making the swarthy, darker people the bad people. On the other hand, well, you want them all to be white? You know, <laughs> what is it, you know? So, so it's, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, not an easy thing to deal with, I think. And plus by... By choosing uh, this actor for Klieg, you know, they assured that uh, many decades later in 2023, some jerk sitting at his computer talking into a microphone would praise his uh, role in this in this show. And mm-hmm. that, that makes it all worthwhile, <laughs> I think. So let's see, where were we? Uh, I was praising Dr. Klieg or Mr. I don't know if we ever hear him called a doctor, but I assume he is. He's a logician. I think he'd at least be a doctor because he keeps going about logic and all that. At at the very least, he's very, uh, very fond of his own intellect. (laughs) He's here, he reveals, to find the power of the Cybermen, to find it and use it. And he thinks the Cybermen are going to be grateful for their resurrection, which uh, <laughs> is, uh, as assumptions go, that's one of the all-time bad ones, probably. Well, it's a theme in Doctor Who, right? For some reason, the bad guys always think they can make a deal with the devil, you know, the Daleks or the Cybermen or whatever, and they're going to control them, and they're going to get their yeah. way. And it never works. <laughs> yeah, we've what, what happens here is, I mean, it's very much in a, a pattern we've already noticed throughout the series where people just have absolute crap ideas and plans and uh, you know, all the all the chaos and death and everything is caused by their stupidity. <laughs> it happens. What can you do? Happens in real life very much, too. So he thinks the Cybermen are going to be grateful. Meanwhile, they're tearing through their condoms and emerging from the cells. Upstairs, meanwhile, Victoria notices the Cybermat slug. And she points it out, and she shrieks, and she says, Look behind you, Yelvin. Captain thinks it's the old look-behind-you gag. <laughs> but then it leaps onto Captain's shoulder, and it's not clear if this thing has somehow subdued her or if she just faints dead away. But either way, she slumps to the floor. Victoria takes the gun that Captain had, and she shoots the Cybermat. Uh, so it's a slug for a slug is what I put in my notes. (laughs) Victoria examines these control levers that operate the hatch, and she has to admit she doesn't know what to do. So she goes across the room towards the entrance door. She sets down the gun in open plain sight. (laughs) Uh, Incomprehensible to me, but uh, who Mm. knows what she's thinking. And she leaves to find Captain Hopper back at the rocket. Down below, the Cybermen... Move past Perry, this Professor Perry, who's leading the expedition. They move past him. They just ignore him, which uh, they don't always do to visitors down there. Uh, We'll find out later. Uh, But here they ignore him, and they open up a special tomb. Uh, And this special tomb contains an extra tall, cone-head Cyberman. And his (laughs) cone is metal, or at least painted metallic, but it also has veins painted on it to display that he's a brainy Cyberman, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. 
And he stands there silently uh, after emerging. And Klieg, uh, the great logician, begins lecturing him on his duty to Klieg, you know, because Klieg is the one who resurrected them all. A Cyberman grabs him, and he says, You belong to us. You shall be like us. And there's your cliffhanger. <laughs> so episode three, and the professor asks how the Cybermen knew the humans would come to release them. They could have been frozen forever. And the Cyberman controller, the guy with the, the big brain. And actually, I needed to look at the subtitles for this. They are, you know, they do these modulated voices. I think this might be a little closer to the original voice than we saw in the moon base, but it can be hard to understand. And it says the humanoid mind, you are inquisitive. Mm -hmm. So they were relying on humans to eventually be curious and come and find them. And the doctor points out the entire tomb is a trap and it's designed so that only superior intellects could get through it. <laughs> Other than the doctor, I, I'm not sure anyone else on this crew is superior. So <laughs> Yeah, and, and considering, you know, with, with what you said, where the doctor deliberately opened the hatch, you know, by, by pushing that extra button and making it look like Klieg knew what he was doing, this, the doctor is basically complimenting himself here. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So back in the main room, Captain is unconscious, and Victoria is with Captain Hopper and another American from the ship, and she wants them to get the hatch open. And <laughs> Hopper says, I'm not pulling any levers. <laughs> That's one of those, like, okay, you're trying to do an American accent, but we don't say levers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. That reminds me, I, I didn't. I may have mentioned this before, but you can cut it out if I have, I guess, or if you remember that I. <laughs> I, uh, you know, have you ever seen episodes of House? No, I know yeah, about it, but I haven't it, It's got it. Hugh Laurie, you know, a, a very talented British actor. He's been in Blackadder and all kinds of, you know, and uh, Fry and Laurie, they had a comedy show, all kinds of stuff. But anyway, he does a really good American accent, in it, but once or twice in the season that I watched, uh, he slipped up. Like a diploma, he said diplomer. Yeah, which was a dead <laughs> giveaway. But, uh, mm. you know, it happens. That that makes me wonder, too, about, like, you hear these stories of spies who are so finely trained to blend into, you know, like, oh, I'm going to go masquerade as a Nazi. I mean, if if you were mm. brought up in another country, I, I, don't, I don't think you could feasibly hope to learn a language with such nuance, unless you were actually brought up in it. Yeah. Um. Well, a couple of things about that. One is an actual trick that Nazis would do to catch like Americans who are trying to, you know, escape or get through things is, and I think they represent this in, um, Oh, the Spielberg film. Uh, the, what's uh, about, what's his name? Uh, anyway. uh, Schindler's oh. list. Yeah. Schindler's list. Um, I think they might represent it there where, a guy's going through a checkpoint, and the German says, thank you, and the guy says, you're welcome. Mm. Because, you know, if you actually speak English, you're you're not even going to think about that, right? You're just ah, hardwired right. to respond. And they catch him that way. And another one was Inglorious Bastards, if you ever saw that. There is a point in there where some there's an American pretending to be a German and he orders like another beer and he puts up two or three fingers or whatever. And he, 
And they catch him based on that because the direction of his fingers no German would do mm. for counting, right? So, you know, it's exactly like what you're saying. There's no way you can absorb things that anyone who grew up in that would know you would never do, but you would never <laughs> have an idea that like, oh, you know, which direction? Right. You know, it's like when we say uh, V for victory with two fingers, well, in most of the world, that's a an, an insult. Right, right. right. Um, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that there's actually um, talking about this reminded me there's a term for this. It's called a shibboleth, like when it's specifically used <laughs> to detect, you know, people. Like another thing they do is like uh, ask people who won the last World Series. You know, if you were American, mm. you, you were. It was assumed right. you'd know that if you were American, which would get me shot on sight, probably. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, Hopper says, I'm not pulling any levers. And uh, Victoria's trying to get them to help her, you know, open this hatch. And meanwhile, we see that Captain is now awake, but pretending to be unconscious. So this is something that happens multiple times with her and Klieg. Uh, and back in the tomb, the doctor wants to stall for time. So he starts asking the cyber controller questions. And the controller says the doctor is in their history computer's records. So, you know, they... Uh, they're very aware of him. Yeah, now, didn't they, didn't they say something like the last time we saw the Cybermen, didn't they say we, we recognize this man or, or something like that? Maybe I'm confusing them with other villains. I, maybe it was the Daleks. I think it was probably oh, a Daleks. Okay, yeah. yeah, I think a Daleks did that. So it turns out, you know, the last time the Doctor and company, which included Jamie, encountered them was the moon base. And. They said, you know, the controller explains that after the moon base, they were out of spare parts. <laughs> and so they kind of had to close down operations and, you know, hide in this tomb. Then he kind of goes into a rendition of the song, I Will Survive. Because <laughs> he keeps saying, he keeps saying, we will survive, we will survive. <laughs> he says this multiple times and I just couldn't help but think of that song. And uh, he wants the humans to become the first of the new race of Cybermen. And they're going to. Go back to Earth and control it, which, you know, sounds like a good deal to me. Yes, it has its upsides, I guess. <laughs> Turn me into a super being and I get to run the planet. Yeah. Okay. And this is actually kind of a little weird thing of the plot because this is what they want to do with them. As we'll see, Klieg wants that too. His whole idea is, is to use their abilities to go back and take over the Earth. So for some reason... He has a problem with it if they cybermanize him, right? Yeah. It doesn't really make sense because he gets to go back and control the Earth, which was exactly what he wanted to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I assume he recognizes that whatever the Cybermen turn you into isn't really you anymore, which, you know, it's yeah. that old question <laughs> that's bugged me since at least seeing uh, – Seeing the thing, you know, John Carpenter's The Thing, is if The Thing gets you, <laughs> the scariest thing about that movie to me is if it gets you, are you still you? Are you, like, trapped in there helplessly watching? Or what? Mm. what's the deal? You know, <laughs> it's pretty spooky anyway. So now the Cybermen start grabbing the humans, and Jamie runs away. And there's a funny little bit that they do a few times because, you know, they only have so much room in the set, so there's like this one wall that they keep running around, you know, so, uh, where, you know, it, it's like anyone can catch you because the wall is like three feet long. And <laughs> just keep running around it. But anyway, he, Jamie runs away and then he tries to get up a ladder, but a Cyberman kind of electrifies him, you know, with 
a zap from his fingers. And this is a big deal because, you know, back then, I mean, these electrical bolts and things we see used multiple times in this, in this show are brand new, right? It was a new technology. You really hadn't seen that uh, much before this. And then there's an infamous shot uh, among Doctor Who people. So a Cyberman picks up Toberman and throws him. And the wires and the and the clips and everything from the wires on Toberman are so incredibly <laughs> visible. I think even on the you know ten inch televisions of the time, you could see them. I, I, I saw this in your notes, and that's why I started chuckling as soon as you said in an infamous shot because this I, I, boy this stood out like a sore thumb. I mean, you know, you have special <laughs> effects things where the wires stand out, but this is like not only the wires are you know I mean they they would have had to paint him with glow-in-the-dark paint to make him any more visible. And and then you not only see the wires, but you actually see these things that are like a couple inches long that are clip, you know, the clips that attach the wires to the harness on the guy's outfit. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's not ideal. <laughs> <laughs> so, upstairs, the Americans have taken apart some of the uh, lever mechanisms to figure out how things are connected. I actually appreciate this, right? Because as you said, up to now, there's been no reasoning behind it. It's just like, oh, I, I know, I'll pull this lever, and then I'll pull this lever, and then I'll pull this lever. These guys actually decided, let's take this thing apart and figure out how these things are connected. So it actually makes a little bit of sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Why, why worry with all this puzzle nonsense if you can just override everything? Yeah. Makes sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> but then on the opposite of making sense, you know, as we mentioned earlier, Victoria left her gun on the floor a few feet away from <laughs> <Yeah>. Captain. <laughs> so, so Captain grabs the gun and she holds them all at gunpoint. And she doesn't want the hatch to open until Cleek signals that he's ready. And this is confusing. I, I, I don't know. So Victoria screams. And we get this quick shot of what might be a Cybermat, you know, and she had screamed earlier about a Cybermat and Captain said, oh, I'm not going to get fooled by that. But then it seems like her scream was really this time just to fool Captain. I, mm. I don't know. I don't know if she was actually screaming in a Cybermat or just trying to distract Captain. But anyway, she screams and Captain Hopper manages to disarm Captain. And they finally open the hatch and Captain Hopper decides to go down, and but first he gets some smoke bombs from his uh, colleague, which will turn out to be helpful. Mm. And downstairs, the controller says that Klieg will be the leader of the new race. And that's why I'm saying, I, you know, I think Klieg should have just gone along with it. You know, yeah, he gets cyber eyes, but he gets everything he wanted. He's going to be the leader of the new race. It's going to go and take over Earth. <laughs> Um, now, Klieg is excited that that as part of this deal, people are going to listen to him. So he's clearly a pretty insecure guy. He's like, yeah, people are going to listen to me. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but he's not happy to hear that he's going to be altered to eliminate fear from his brain. Mm -hmm. And uh, then this is a little odd because they've been talking about how they're going to send these guys back to, to Earth. But then they say, well, we're going to freeze you all in this tomb until we need you. So apparently they don't want to take over earth right away or something i don't know yeah well we'll see later on that the the lead cyberman also sends some of the cybermen back to their cells to conserve energy he says so apparently mm -hmm. the cells use less energy than just having cybermen walking around 
And now Captain Hopper shows up and throws some smoke bombs, and that really messes up the Cybermen. <laughs> they can't deal with smoke. Yeah, yeah. So they really look stupid in the smoke. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone's running around in chaos, and in the process, the Cybermen grab Toberman and, su- and subdue him with electric zaps. And they decide, you know, they're going to start converting him first since he's powerful. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the humans manage to get out of the hatch, except for the doctor who's last. And there's a Cyberman pulling him down. And Victoria, I'll give her, you know, credit. She goes and grabs a fire extinguisher or something, and she's whacking the Cyberman, or it's a thermos or something. Eventually, they get the hatch closed. Uh, but the Cyberman is smashing through the hatch, and Klieg and Toberman are still down yeah, there. Yeah, he's, he's at least putting some dents in it. So Klieg gets to the hatch and pounds on it, and after some debate, they open it and let him out. And the doctor asks if he now understands he can't bargain with the Cybermen, but he doesn't have a clue. He's like, no, I just I just need more bargaining power. So, you know, he hasn't learned anything. <laughs> uh, downstairs, Toberman has been restrained, and they release Cybermaths to take over Toberman's brain. But the Cybermats are dormant from lack of use, so apparently they kind of run out of battery power or something. But eventually they get them running. Yeah, so I'm not sure what... Maybe maybe it was just filler, or maybe they just wanted to... Yeah. Maybe the they just had super thorough writers who wanted to cover every last eventuality. <laughs> Back in the weapon testing room, Kafton and Klieg realized that they can take the gun that the dummy Cybermen had, because it was a real gun, and they can use it. And... <laughs> I don't really understand this because Klieg is like, well, now that we have this gun, the Cybermen have to listen. I'm invulnerable with this. I shall be master. And I'm just like, dude, it's a gun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we have, we do see or may see later that normal human guns don't work on the Cybermen and this gun does work on them. So, okay. But it's like one gun. And <laughs> yeah. Cybermen, so and they've got turning at you least into a dozen Cybermen downstairs. Yeah. Yeah. So he's particularly focused on killing the doctor. He says the others are of no consequence, but the doctor will make the most precise target. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he should worry about the cyber. Yeah, <laughs> I think his uh, his esteem for his own logician brain has uh, yeah, put some uh, unneeded uh, professional rivalry in there where it wasn't isn't very helpful. So downstairs, the Cybermen place a bunch of Cybermats on a runway, a little ramp that's going to lead upstairs so that they can go and deal with the humans. About the runway, I wanted to say that that's uh, it's kind of cute what they did. They Now, most of the effect is pretty easy to explain. They probably just have like a little conveyor belt thing in there. Uh, but what happens is as the Cybermats are moving, you know, because it's supposed to look like they're crawling under their own power. And as, as they're doing it, their tails are sort of twitching back and forth. So they, they've got some kind of mechanism that even while they're being dragged on this conveyor or dragged by a string, whatever it is that they've got moving them, they're also animated a little bit. So it's not bad. Well, they may have actually been moving under their own power because those were radio controlled. In oh, fact, really? The actresses, like the, the actress who played Victoria, said that the crew was always screwing with her by, you know, running these under her legs. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, I just, from the way they moved, it looked to me like it was a conveyor belt just dragging them. But, uh, yeah, that would... Yeah, it it may have been in that case that I'd go back. But if they are actual little mechanical dudes, then uh, that explains how their tails could twitch at any rate. 
Yeah. So most of the people upstairs are asleep. Victoria is standing guard, and the doctor wakes up, and they have a conversation. And this is, you know, it's a break in the action, and it's kind of a really nice conversation. It reminds me of Hartnell talking to Barbara in, I think it might have been um, The Edge of Destruction, where they have kind of a nice discussion. And this is sort of similar to that, where, you know, Victoria's dad just died in the last story, and... She's upset about it, and the doctor talks about how you can keep people in the back of your mind and then kind of bring them to life mentally when you want to. And, you know, he's being very reassuring to her and also giving a little bit of hint of his past, right, that he's had some kind of family or or people that he cares about in that same way, even though it was a long time Mm -hmm. ago. Um, So I just think it's a nice thing. Yeah, it's nice. I just I just lost a family member pretty recently myself. So it's uh yeah, it didn't it didn't offend me. I didn't find it saccharine or anything like that. It was you know, pretty much uh pretty much all you can do in circumstances like that. So I give it a thumbs up. <laughs> Meanwhile, a cyber mat appears. <laughs> it makes so much noise. There's always beeping noises like beep, 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 right? But the doctor <laughs> doesn't notice it. Until it bumps into his foot. And then Cybermats start getting all over the humans. And the doctor smacks one of them off of one of the spaceship crew. And he directs everyone into the other room. But a Cybermat is blocking them. This little tiny two-inch thing is keeping them from going in. They're surrounded. And he finds like a power cable or something. And he starts laying it on the ground around the humans. And the cable shorts out the Cybermats. And... I wanted to mention this power cable. We've seen it in shots leading up to this, so they foreshadowed a little, uh, and it just looked like a big lump of giant intestines piled up on the ground. <laughs> yeah, it's not like a plastic cable or something. Yeah. Uh, and now here's another one where I'm I'm thinking they might have done this, you know, on their own because mm. it's another little silly bet. The, the director probably wouldn't want it. Go ahead. Uh, so the doctor says, you might say they've had a complete metal breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> and Jamie does a, oh, doctor. And, you know, again, it just, it doesn't feel like something this director yeah, would have wanted. I, so I, think I, <laughs> I distinctly got that feeling um, uh, when I saw this, that they, that was sort of an improvised thing that the director allowed <laughs> to stay. And I also got the feeling, it's funny that right before we started recording, we were talking about Bullwinkle because this line specifically made me think of uh, Mr. Peabody. <laughs> mm. I could just see him <laughs> delivering that very line. <laughs> so now Klieg and Captain come in from the weapon testing room. And remember, they had found that gun. So Klieg has the gun and he shoots it at the crew. And it's the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. Well, we're in the home stretch with episode four. Uh, Jamie cries, watch out, doctor. And uh, the shot is fired as it was at the end of the last episode. But it turns out that a guy from the ship, whose name I don't recall, he wasn't one of the big players, he blocked the shot. Now, uh, that that might have been a heroic self-sacrifice or he might have just got in the way. It wasn't clear to me. Uh, But he's shot at any rate. Klieg isn't going to uh, kill him just yet. He didn't kill him. He's still alive. Captain says killing them won't be necessary because the Cybermen will put them to good use. Uh, so she's she's pretty nasty. And uh, 
Klieg opens the hatch and yells down below that he wishes to speak to the controller. This is where the controller sends many of the Cybermen back to their cells to conserve energy. <laughs> back to their cells means reverse the footage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the condoms heal up behind them. And uh, Toberman sits up on the operating table and he has kind of a blank look in his eyes. Uh, the Cybermen get back into their cells, etc. So the controller and Toberman appear. They climb up that ladder to the top and they appear in the hatch pipe. They're still not out of the pipe yet. But Klieg's got this, his Cyberman gun and he offers to revitalize the controller if he cooperates. So the controller releases Toberman. That's one of Klieg's demands. Um, or at least he lets Toberman walk over and join the humans. But he, they, they do this little effect. There's a little visible burst of mental energy, like a, these waves animated between the two heads. But it's clear that Toberman is still under their spell. He's just not like he's not just reverting him to normal Toberman with this burst of energy. Yeah, and the other thing which. Is actually important in the history of the series and everything, but which is actually a little hard to tell if you don't look very closely, which is they have started converting Toberman. So they didn't just take him over. They started converting him, and one of his arms um, has started to become a Cyberman arm, but you barely see mm. it. Uh, so it would be easy to even miss it almost. Yeah, you know, well, it, I sure missed it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take your word for it, though. <laughs> The Doctor and Jamie, though, talking quietly amongst themselves, they notice that Toberman doesn't seem quite himself. And here the controller's face looks oddly rough to me, and his eyes are even asymmetrical. Like his left eye, you know, on the right as we're looking at it, is sort of uh, flattened and elongated. Um, it's, it's, mm. I think it's a different mask than Episode 2, because I, I rewatched Episode 2 to take my notes for this recording and uh when he first comes out of his tomb his eyes don't have this weird asymmetrical look yeah i'd also say so i feel like these guys are an improvement certainly on the first ones where they had socks over their head <laughs> and they had human hands and everything which they don't at this point but and i think in the whole the Cyberman design is fine, but one of the problems you have, especially in modern TVs, is that you can just see that, you know, they've done very elemental painting around the eyes mm -hmm. or the mouth or whatever. Like, it's, you know, it just, it's not good. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, again, 10-inch TVs or something, it was okay, but these days it's pretty sloppy. Yeah. No, he was he was just resurrected, so, you know, he didn't get his makeup quite right. What can you do? Yeah. The Cyberman agrees to Klieg's terms, or says he agrees to them, and he heads to the room with the charging socket in it, uh, or the uh, revitalizing niche, I guess. Klieg gets annoyed, meanwhile, uh, with the doctor, who just is blabbing about whatever, and he sends the doctor and his friends into the next room uh, with, the, with the Cyberman, but uh, he keeps Victoria as a hostage. The commander's growing weaker fast, and we we got a little indication of this when he was standing in the hatch pipe conversing with Klieg, um, that his voice was a little worn down, but it's really becoming more apparent now. Uh, he's running out of battery, and the doctor offers to help, uh, and Jamie objects to this, you know, why on earth would you want to help the commander of the Cybermen? 
But the doctor just says that he thinks it best. So they help him get into the niche. At this point, he doesn't even have the strength to get into that hole in the wall under his own power. They uh, revitalize her machine. It, it starts moving up and down and making noises. And the door closes on the Cyberman. And the doctor says, we must make sure that he stays in there. And Jamie seems to realize now what the plan was. <laughs> And the plan was pretty obvious. Uh, so I think uh, Jamie should have <laughs> got a little yeah. there. Okay. Well, I, I was thinking they might actually try and reprogram the revitalizer to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, weaken him instead of uh, recharging him. But no, they don't do that, as we'll find out shortly. Victoria, meanwhile, she asks Klieg, what about the other weapon in that room over there? And she indicates the room where the doctor and the commander just went. Kaftan almost goes to check, but uh, then Klieg stops her. He points out that it could be an ambush, and he suggests just waiting here until everything's resolved. Back in that room, uh, the revitalizing socket, uh, now the with the door closed, there are some ropes draped over the door, and uh, it does not look like a terribly secure uh, <laughs> trip to it's me. It's pretty silly because Jamie did the ropes. He's like, oh, no, you know, I remember you used some yeah, reference some to great some beastie the, the, couldn't the master get out beastie or, something. or whatever. Could never get out. It's like, no, these ropes are literally just laid down. <laughs> They're not <laughs> tight or t- locked or whatever. And, you know, yeah, it turns out that uh, he didn't do a very good <laughs> yeah. job. <laughs> Although even if they were Immaculately well-tied. I'm not sure how well uh, they could actually hold up against the might of the Cyberman because he doesn't just open the door. <laughs> he bursts through the door. Yeah. <laughs> Did you notice all the styrofoam? Yes, <laughs> aluminum foil and styrofoam. Uh, it's, uh, so yeah. as Doctor Who effects go, it's not one of the greats. <laughs> no, part of, we mentioned before that one of the things about styrofoam is that was relatively new. So to the audience, it wouldn't have necessarily had the same connotation. Yeah, it, it might have just been a foreign material to them. They might have thought it was drywall, yeah. though. If they, I assume yeah. they had drywall in the 1960s. But uh, he sends uh, mental waves to Toberman again, uh, the Cyberman commander does. And uh, so this is going to make Toberman do something drastic in this next scene where Klieg is in the central room still. He sets down his gun for a moment because he's among friends. He's got Kaftan and uh, Toberman, and the great logician has not yet noticed that Toberman is not entirely himself. And the moral of this story, Eric, I think is, I mean, these all four of these episodes, is the moral is never be without a gun. <laughs> Don't set your gun <laughs> down, especially not somewhere uh, where you are out of arm's reach. Something I meant to mention earlier, so it's it's totally tangential now, but I feel like Captain and Toberman have a thing, right? I mean, he's her servant, but the way she looks at him and praises him and all the rest of that, it just feels to me like, uh, you know, maybe it goes a little bit further. <laughs> well, that <laughs> master servant relationship. Yeah, it could be because the doctor will soon enough uh, try to use her as a sort of uh, bargaining chip with uh, right. Toberman, but we'll, we'll get to that. While uh, Klieg is sitting down and talking to Captain Toberman comes up and he brains Klieg. I'm not sure if he's just using his fists. Maybe he has a blunt object. It's not clear because it's, it's very quick. But uh, whatever it is, Klieg is knocked to the floor and unconscious or possibly dead. 
The others now returned to the control room, including the Cyberman commander, newly revitalized, and he orders Kaftan to open the tombs. Kaftan says, you promised, which is pretty rich coming from her. She's not the <laughs> bastion of ethics. The Cyberman replies, Cybermen do not promise. Such ideas have no value. So never never take a promise from a Cyberman. No land in mm-hmm. tears. She refuses to open a hatch, and it looks like the controller is going to shoot her. But finally, he just walks over to the lever and flips it himself. But as soon as he turns his back and heads over to the hatch, Captain closes it again. So he turns back to her, and she's got a gun. But it's a useless human gun. And she doesn't know that it's useless against the Cybermen, because none of them have tried shooting a Cyberman yet. But now she does try, and uh, the Cyberman basically says, eh, that's not going to work. And then he shoots Captain. And she's uh, she's down now. Doctor, meanwhile... Uh, oh, well, we should say, she gets a pretty dramatic death, right? She gets uh, all this smoke comes out oh, of her yeah. clothes. Oh, yeah. Actually, the way he shoots her is kind of neat, because it, uh, it looked like an actual missile of some kind came out of the gun, a smoking projectile of some sort, and it ends up, you know, sticking in her neck or chest or something. So she's got all the smoke coming right out of her collar. Uh, so it's, it's an interesting little scene there. But, yeah, she's uh, she's down now. And, uh, uh, you know, people in in these episodes, uh, some of them some of them don't always stay down, but, but she's going to stay down, I think. So the doctor, meanwhile, makes an impassioned appeal to Toberman, uh, to his remaining humanity, you know, I, I, and and this is one of the places where you know he seems to bring in. He doesn't say anything about Toberman's love for Captain, but he brings her up as a martyr. You know, look what they did to Captain. So he he clearly figures Toberman has some sort of special affection for her. And it turns out that as ridiculous as this struck me at the time, it actually does work. Uh, there's enough of humanity left in Toberman that uh, he he accepts the doctor's appeal. Uh, he goes up to the uh, commander, sneaks up on him from behind, not really sneaks, just walks silently, you know, and attacks him, picks him up. Uh, and I don't remember seeing any wires in this scene, so maybe they did a better job or maybe they'd approached it a different way or something. But he throws him against one of the control panels. So, you know, there's sparks and smoke and whatnot. And then the controller falls to the floor. He twitches a little bit, and then he falls silent. Was this the one uh, where he was clearly throwing a a doll? (laughs) Uh, Probably, yeah. I don't remember it looking non-doll-like, so (laughs) I'm going to assume that's what it was. Yeah, I guess they wouldn't have needed wires for that. Makes sense. So the doctor, now here's an interesting thing that uh, raises a philosophical question. Yeah, it's related to what I said about the thing earlier. The doctor orders Jamie to shoot a Cyberman emerging from the hatch and then another one who's still mm-hmm. coming up the ladder. And we've already know the doctor has established uh, on multiple occasions that he he doesn't believe in killing. Yep. So this would suggest that he doesn't consider the Cybermen to be living even though, from what we know of them, they're not just artificially intelligent robots. They're actual cyborgs. You know, and some part of them is still mm-hmm. alive, and presumably they even still have human brains. 
So it's not clear how this fits into the doctor's whole uh, moral scheme. Yeah, it's it's problematic, you know. And and not only that, then Jamie shoots another Cyberman, you know. So so it's definitely uh, doesn't fit into the doctor's philosophy. Yeah. So the doctor wants to go back down the hatch again, even though things are apparently a okay. Uh, you know, they've taken out the this commander. You know, everything's good. Uh, that, for me, would be the perfect time to get the hell out of there. Uh, but the doctor wants to go back down and check things out again. He talks to Toberman again, and uh, he he makes some more points. Uh, one thing he says uh, is they tried to make you their slave. And you know, as he's saying this, you know, we see Toberman sitting there uh, very dark-complected. You know, and, I mean... It seems a little ham-handed, if you ask me. It's like, you know, it's sort of like what Office Space used for comic effect when uh, Peter was uh, complaining about um, Jennifer Aniston. I don't remember what her character's name was, but but uh, he was complaining mm-hmm. about her job where she worked at the at the theme restaurant, you know, and uh, he said, you know, the Nazis had pieces of flair they made the Jews wear. It was just like sort of taking the big thing and trivializing it. Now, now, of course, I don't object to that morally being in office space because I thought it was a hilarious line. But, uh, I mean, it's sort of the doctor is sort of doing straight-faced what they did for laughs in mm. that movie. I don't know. That, that's the way it seems to me. It's like the doctor's... well. I I think one of the unfortunate things about Toberman here is that he is treated as kind of a moron who can be led around with simple things, right? So when the doctor says, "Oh, this is evil," then Toberman's like, "Oh, evil! Yeah. Oh, gotta go smash <laughs> evil!" Yeah. You know, it's it's like the Hulk or something. Yeah, although um, he has been zombified, yeah. so I mean, you know, he's yeah. somewhere between Toberman and Cyberman. You know, they've They've removed yeah. a lot of his human aspects, but not really replaced them with anything useful. He still has some humanity, and he he does get to have a heroic role in the end. So I think those are yeah. uh, are positives. But uh, yeah, yeah. But 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 he's it, it, at the moment he's in kind of a weird semi-human state from the Cyberman operation he went through. Yep. So yeah, he he doesn't really get to shine, and I mean the. The actor would probably be a fun guy to see in some really meaty roles, you know, if he was given more to do. But uh, we're not getting that from this episode anyway. (laughs) So, like you said, uh, the doctor says, they are evil. And again, he alludes to, he says, think of Kaftan, um, you know, again, trying to play on whatever relationship existed between Toberman and Kaftan. And Toberman says, evil, which he could just as well say of Kaftan, (laughs) But, uh, well, you know what they say, a stiff prick has no conscience. So, anyway, Jamie says, Doctor, the gun, as the doctor is heading down the hatch. And the doctor says, I shan't need it. <laughs> so that generally doesn't always work out well. Generally doesn't usually always do this. Yeah, that was a roundabout way of saying it. But 
Generally, it doesn't work out well. <laughs> seconds later, just actual seconds later, uh, after they've gone down the hatch, Klieg revives. There are some other guys with the expedition who are still up here in the main room. Uh, but Klieg uh, revives and silently, without getting their attention, he snatches the gun off the table and he heads down the hatch. Uh, so maybe the doctor should have taken it. Down below... <laughs> Toberman starts smashing up the furniture. He's just, like you said, the Hulk, you know, he's going into a Hulk rage here. But the doctor hushes him and says, don't wake the Cybermen. Now Klieg shows up with his gun and he starts the wake up cycle. Uh, so these poor Cybermen, they're just getting yanked back and forth all the time <laughs> these days. The doctor is going to get to witness, Klieg tells him, he's going to get to witness the union between mass power and my absolute intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> Which, do you remember, um, oh, uh, what was um, his name in the Daleks' master plan? He had the great name Chen or, oh, Mavic Chen. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> so yeah, in, in Daleks' master plan, yeah, Mavic Chen. If you remember, he was doing the whole same thing, mm -hmm. right? You know, I'm going to be the master of the universe and... Uh, and all that, and and also <laughs> thinking his assistant was going to go along with him. Now, Cleeg uh, and um, Captain seem to be, you know, pretty loyal to each other. So no, neither of them, at least, tries to screw each other in this. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, it's the it's the same basic story. You know, uh, some some clever little upstart comes along and thinks he's going to dominate the evil villains who have terrorized whole worlds. Yeah, <laughs> sure, buddy. Klieg figures out that Jamie is down here. He catches the doctor kind of mugging to him, you know, ordering him to hide behind something with his uh, raising eyebrows and whatnot. So Klieg figures that he's down here, and he gathers Doctor and Jamie and Toberman all up against the wall. The doctor now takes a new strategy, and uh, he just starts shamelessly buttering up Klieg. And Klieg, uh, being... The completely unself-aware man that he is, he's just eating this up. You know, the doctor even gets to the point where he's talking about Klieg the All-Powerful. He's talking about the vision of uh, no one in the world will think anything except the thoughts that are held by Klieg. Or, you know, that sort of thing. And, and <laughs> Klieg is just transported by this vision. It's like, uh, oh, this didn't occur to him before that he could operate on this scale which of course it must have but and yet just the just the to hear the doctor describing it in his doctor prose is uh, somehow just inspiring Klieg and transporting him and now the doctor brings him crashing back down to earth with well not entirely crashing because it doesn't change Klieg's mind at one bit but he says now I know you're mad I just wanted to make sure <laughs> Meanwhile, upstairs, Captain Hopper shows up in the main room, and Victoria flatters him. It seems like she's trying to get him ready to go down there and help out if things require it. Uh, but it never amounts to anything, because I don't think Hopper ever actually goes down there. Down below, um, Klieg says, You still think that your puny minds can survive against <laughs> us? And th this, again, reminds me of that... Uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space scene, you know, where the guy is, you're stupid mind, stupid. <laughs> Klieg is just about to shoot Toberman and the Doctor and Jamie, but he decides instead to give them to the Cybermen. This keeps happening, right? Because Captain said it right, earlier, right. like, oh, you got, 
you know, so they keep coming back to, oh, we'll give you to the Cybermen. <laughs> it's like three different times. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it hasn't worked out yet, but uh, try, try again, I guess. Uh, and just as he's saying this, a Cyberman attacks him from behind. And it's not clear why exactly, because the same Cyberman it completely ignores the other three who are standing a yard away. But after, after he attacks Klieg, he turns to the control panel. But then when he does that, Toberman attacks him from behind. Uh, and they get into a big fight in the background while the Doctor and Jamie are looking at the control levers and doing their thing. Toberman smashes the Cyberman's chest plate, which releases a strand of saran wrap and a bunch of shaving cream. So, uh, you know, it's uh, it's kind of, yeah, it's very, I, I would I would say it's rated G. You know, it's not gory enough to be <laughs> really traumatizing for a kid. Well, not necessarily. I'm sure there's some kids out there who would be utterly psychologically wrecked by it. But to me, it was not a particularly horrific scene it was more uh, uh sort of a face palm <laughs> in the effects world but mm -hmm. yeah i've seen worse too i guess just because i thought so soon of shaving cream i think that really <laughs> just took took the zing out of it for me <laughs> and the doctor has switched the switches properly and the wall of tombs freezes up again forever question mark <laughs> Back upstairs, the doctor goes to the main controls. He walks right by Toberman. He doesn't so much as nod to him or thank him or nothing. Just like, you know, Toberman did his job. That's mm -hmm. only what's expected of him. <laughs> so the doctor's going to sabotage this facility. And again, this uh, <laughs> makes us wonder about the doctor's uh, commitment mm. to pacifism because he's going to sabotage it. So anyone who touches pretty much anything will be electrocuted. Not only the entrance doors, which have already killed at least one person, but also the control panel, you know, various aspects of the uh, facility. So this, this struck me as being similar to being against killing, but not objecting to laying landmines. I yeah. mean, it's, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> But that's what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. But no, I agree. I mean, to me, it was shocking, right? Because you don't need to kill somebody. You just want to keep them away. So it's sort of like a cow fence, right? You yeah. Know, you, you make it so that it'll be annoying, but you don't kill the cow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, speaking as a man who has had multiple uh, contacts with electric fences, I, uh, I can tell you I'm, I'm very grateful that they don't electrocute you. <laughs> so... The controller wakes up finally. Of course he had to. You know he couldn't just be dead. But the doctor and Jamie make a brilliant plan, which is split up. <laughs> you go around the table that way, and I'll go around this way. And it works. They get outside the big main entrance doors, uh, and they start forcing them closed. Uh, but they can't fully close them, because as soon as they're fully closed, that'll electrify the doors, and that will kill Jamie and the doctor instantly. And then they see some support beams lying around in the middle of the desert for some reason. Maybe maybe <laughs> part of the archaeological dig that got to the point where they could blast away the final layer of dirt. Who knows? So they, they use these support beams to hold the door closed for a moment. But uh, for one reason or another, they I don't remember what happened, but they end up losing the support beams. Maybe it's because Toberman steps in. He comes up and he's just 
He's standing before the doors just as he did when he first opened them. But now he's trying to push them shut with a great big cyberman on the other side trying to push them open. And Toberman says, you are evil. They shall never pass, Toberman. <laughs> a couple of things here. This reminded me, of course, of the Lord of the Rings, you know, you shall not pass. Uh, but, but also, they do actually a really nice shot here, which is while he's saying that, they do a shot through the doors that are being closed to his face. Um, and that was just an unusually nice, you know, stylistic shot mm-hmm. while he's while he's making his his dying uh, phrases. Here. Yeah, yeah. In his in his moment of sacrifice, he gets a he gets a nice shot. And uh, the doors close fully. Toberman's strength outmatches even that of a newly revitalized Cyberman controller. But when they close, instantly both the controller and Toberman are fried. And it seems, if I'm counting right, of Perry's whole expedition, only Hopper and Perry survived to return home. <laughs> uh, everybody else died, which is too bad, because there were some nice people in there. And uh, I, I, I haven't talked much about Kaftan so far, uh, but I enjoyed her, too. She was um, mm. she had a certain kind of, uh, I don't know, Joie de vivre or something. She was she was very <laughs> evil, of course, but she was also uh, sort of cheerful about it. I don't know. Something enjoyable. But... <laughs> she had a very take charge yeah. attitude. <laughs> and Jamie says, that really is the end of the Cybermen, isn't it? And the doctor agrees initially, but then he says, I never like to make predictions. And as they walk toward the TARDIS, we see that a Cybermat slug has escaped from the tombs, and it's rolling around the planet, making its little looking-for-brains beeps and noises. The kind of funny thing to me when Jamie said that about the end of the Cybermen is that (laughs) before that, we'd seen this Cybermat go between all their legs, (laughs) so apparently none of them were looking down (laughs) to notice it. But I'll at least give the show that they made a little excuse for why um, you know, the Cybermen might be able to persist uh, after this. Yeah, yeah. And for that matter, there's whole tombs full of Cybermen down there. As long as somebody can get past <laughs> the electricity, they're uh, good yeah. to go. And then we get a last shot of Toberman lying dead on the ground. And then that kind of made me feel bad. Like, you're not even going to, if you're not going to take him back yeah, to Earth, don't at least uh, shovel some dirt on him or something. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. But they just left him lying there. And then the camera zooms in on that Mayan-style Cyberman icon on the outer tomb wall. And that's the end of the episode and the end of the story. (laughs) Well, as I said, you know, I think this is considered sort of a problematic classic, right? You know, you have the swarthy people being the bad guys. but You have the, you know pretty interesting reveal of the Cybermen and, you know, breaking out of their tomb thingies and coming down the wall and all that. And that's considered one of the all time images for the Cybermen. Yeah. So I don't know. What do you, what do you think of all this? Well, I think you have to let the swarthy people be the bad guys now and then, or it gets too predictable. You're like, Oh uh, yeah, he, his, uh, his skin is darker than a grocery bag. So obviously he's going to be the good guy. That, that only cuts it for so long. <laughs> So that didn't bother me so much. Overall, for the story, it was uh, it was fun, and then some of the actors in here, you know, like I said, I especially liked uh, the big villain Klieg, 
And, uh, you know, the lesser villain, uh, Kaftan, she was fun. Hopper was neat. Perry, the professor, he was good. He, he came across as just sort of a guy who's genuinely trying to do what's right and just, you know, gain knowledge and so forth. Yeah, the, the, the sets are, uh, I, I like I like the uh, I like the hieroglyphs. Uh, you know, some of mm-hmm. these set design is sort of uh, Doctor Who-ish, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's fine for what it needs to be. The hatch was cute. I mean, it was a plausible looking hatch, I guess. Well, the- I think a good thing there is that you understand the geography of it, right? I mean, you basically have a main room. You have a tomb blow through that hatch you have a couple of side rooms and some of the background material archaeologists said yeah it's actually a pretty accurate layout of of a egyptian tomb right that that's you know the kind of things that you could could expect Uh, i don't think they had all the levers (laughs) 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 you know and they were trying for a consistency with the levers and the symbology i mean i think they kind of maybe overdid it a bit but (laughs) uh, yeah that like we talked about earlier, the the way that they solve the puzzles of the levers is just, uh, you know, it's just hand-waving, basically. You know, pseudoscience, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. They, they don't really do anything to explain the logic by which they solve the puzzles. And I will say, well, there are little bits of padding here and there. I don't feel like it's a case where you could feel like, oh, there's a whole episode that doesn't really need to be there or anything like that. I think that... Uh, it moves along, you know, pretty well. Um, yeah, I, I'm sure I could edit it down to three episodes, but yeah, I'll, <laughs> I, it's 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 fine, especially for a Doctor Who. It's there's not gratuitous padding. I'll say you know, there's just normal padding. <laughs> One challenge I think that will you know come back over and over again is that. You start out with, say, the Daleks or the Cybermen, and they and they are usually kind of a homogeneic race that you're dealing with, right? But then the writers, when when they come back the second, third, fourth time, the writers naturally want a focus. They want a, a sort of particular leader, bad guy that you can focus on and communicate with, right? So so here we have the controller. Later in the Daleks, we'll we'll have kind of the equivalent. And on the one hand, it totally makes sense, right? You want the person in charge, the Hitler or whatever, that you can have conversations with. On the other hand, it's it once you do that, you start to take away from the horror of the the race as a whole, right? Because they just become pawns or automatons, you know, being run by the leader. Right. And so I, I think that's a challenge for Doctor Who that keep coming back and, and because they will tend to evolve towards, oh, okay, here's the person who controls this entire evil race and that's who we're dealing with. Right. Um, now, I don't think, I mean, in this case, this controller, it's not like he controls all Daleks everywhere. I mean, I guess these are not Daleks, <laughs> Cybermen. No, I guess these are all the remaining Cybermen at the moment. But he's still more, to my mind, more of a, local leader right it's not i don't you don't get the feeling like he's going to come back and be the the bad guy over and over again or something which um happens with some of the others Um, yeah i you know while you were mentioning all that you reminded me of in warhammer 40k there's a whole evil race called i think they're called the necrons 
and they're they're like these machine intelligences and throughout the galaxy they have these planets where they have all these tombs hidden and woe betide the person who stumbles on one and wakes them up because mm -hmm. they're basically destroy all humans type robots <laughs> but I wonder if that might have been inspired by the Tomb of the Cybermen. Uh, mm. Could be, could be. But something to think about. Uh, well, so, okay, where then where would you put yourself on the, the worth watching um, movie there? <laughs> I'd say somewhat worth watching. It's, it's a cut above average, I'd say, for Doctor Who. Uh, it's not going to be one of my all-time favorites, but had some fun stuff in it. Uh, it does have a lot of uh, bad science writing that you have to be willing to overlook. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm not even a science expert, so I mean, I, if I can catch this stuff, uh, somebody who's a real a real geek is just going to be infuriated. But uh, yeah, it's overall it's fun. I'd, I'd say uh, if you're just in the mood for something fun, this is good, and it is a chance. To see all the Troughton era characters, you know, in live action, which we haven't had much of yeah. so far. Yeah. So I'd say uh, don't make it your highest priority. But if you're if you're watching through the series as we are, this should be on the list of ones you stop by. <laughs> right, and I also say. If you're either interested in sort of touchstones of Doctor Who or in the Cyberman, then it's definitely a must-watch because it is a key story in the history of the Cyberman, you know, and developing one of the key bad guys of Doctor mm -hmm. Who. But, uh, you know, yeah, I think it's a, it's a mix. In a way, I almost think it's, it's the perfect Doctor Who story because there's some interesting ideas. I really like the iconography and design and, you know, how they kind of converted the – Egyptian look into the Cyberman look. I think that's all r really well done. And then you have the, you know, the silly anime eyes, you know, Cybermats <laughs> and uh, and all that. So you know, you you get the silliness and you get some good stuff. And that's what uh, that's what a good Doctor Who story should have. <laughs> so, well, next up is the Abominable Snowman, and I um. Really know nothing about this one. Uh, it's another missing story, but fortunately it's been animated, mm. so at least we don't have to go through a reconstruction. I actually asked uh, ChatGPT, I was like, you know, is there some association of the word abominable with snowmen? Cause it's, and, and it said, yeah, there is sort of a connection that historically that is a phrase that has been used for like the Yeti, you know, which is referring to the, mm -hmm. I think the Yeti, Yeti are essentially the Bigfoot of, you know, the Himalayas or something. Oh, yeah. So it's just kind of funny how a phrase like that comes along. Like I remember in the eighties when uh, it was eighties or nineties, when Rodney King was uh, beat by the police and the news, it just became this meme. He was called motorist Rodney King, right? Cause he'd been in a car oh. so, motorist, Rodney King, motorist, Rodney King. Oh. Right? So it's like, but what is, you know, what's a motorist? Who the hell talks about motorist? Right. Uh, and, and so that's kind of what I feel like with abominable snowmen. It's like abominable. Well, okay, I guess maybe they're bad guys, but I mean we don't call everybody who's bad abominable. So it's just kind of just what sticks to you, you know. It it doesn't it doesn't strike me as strange because I've been exposed to it for a long time. You know, when I was real young, I was interested in the Bigfoot Loch Ness monster, abominable snowman, yada yada yada. You know, and then uh, 
after a while, I think I realized nobody was finding any real proof for any of them, so I just <laughs> sort of lost interest. And they said, "Yeah." Well, here's the funny thing about this: is you know, I'm I'm a part of an organization that does a podcast about these sorts of things, right? And whether they're real or not. Um, the the funny thing to me is that there's this whole set of people. They're called like cryptozoics or something, or you know, they mm-hmm. crypto, cryptozoologists. Not, not, yeah, yeah, not money crypto, but yeah. <laughs> so, and um, they're they devote their lives to finding you know Bigfoot or finding Loch Ness or whatever. And the the really bizarre thing to me about this is there actually are bizarre creatures, especially in the sea. Mm-hmm. That we discover, you know, every few years we discover some new, really amazing, bizarre creature that we never could have imagined previously. But that doesn't work for these people. They're not out looking for them because those are real. (laughs) (laughs) They, whatever the psychology is, whatever the human need to be searching for something that you'll never find is, that's what they're doing, right? They've got to search for the thing that they're never actually going to find. Yeah, but but (laughs) on the other hand... You know, you don't have to worry if you take your family camping at a state park. You don't need to worry about some deep-sea tube worm or something. You you need to worry about Bigfoot. That's the priority here, buddy. I'd like to talk seriously just for a moment. One of the great art exhibits ever to tour the United States is the Treasures of Tutankhamun, or King Tut. But I think it's a national disgrace the way we have commercialized it with trinkets and toys, t-shirts and posters. And about three months ago, I was up in the woods and I wrote a song. I tried to use the ancient modalities and melodies. I would like to do it for you right now. Maybe we can all learn something from this. was a young man, he never thought he'd see people stand in line to see the boy king. King How'd you get so funky? Did you do the monkey? 